Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 64, the book of Matthew, chapter 18, continued. We began to study Matthew 18, 15 through 20 last week, and shortly we're going to reread that section. Now, before we do that, we need, we need to set the context. This is necessarily going to involve some amount of sermonizing, which I don't mind a bit, to go along with the teaching. Now, the opening of verse 15 says in most English Bibles, Moreover, if your brother commits a sin against you. The term your brother, as used here, has been taken to mean a person who shares your faith. Nearly all Bible commentators on this matter say that this means something that happens between Christian brothers. This, I think, is a bit of reading something into the passage that's a little too narrow. Now, no doubt this has to include Jews in general, but it also involves some element of trusting in Christ. That is, this instruction is general on the one hand, but on the other is also more targeted at one that is among his flock of followers. But at this point in the book of Matthew, or in any of the Gospels for that matter, we learn that up to now, Yeshua has revealed that He is the Messiah only to His twelve, and they are not to tell anyone outside that closed inner circle. Remember that the overall context of this section of Matthew is that at the moment Christ is speaking only to that inner circle. And since these men represent the leadership of the Jesus movement, then it seems that what we are getting from Yeshua is what we can rightly call community rules that will be needed when the anticipated community of believers starts to mature and expand well beyond the Twelve. So it is improbable that these rules apply only to the Twelve. However, it is likely that Yeshua is stating something that ideally all Jews ought to already be doing, because they have the Law of Moses to refer to. Even so, this instruction applies doubly to those that lay that lay claim of allegiance to Him. Now, the use of the word sin here, if your brother commits a sin against you, using the word sin here can be a bit off-putting if you commit a sin against your brother. Typically, modern Western believers think of sin as something that is committed against God, not another person. So to speak of one person sinning against another doesn't feel quite right to us. The Greek is harmatano, and it is a broadly used word that can define the commission of an offense 
both from the secular sense and the religious sense. It can mean breaking a legal law, but also just severely upsetting another. So we have to be careful not to spiritualize the matter in this regard. Okay. Even more complicating is that only some of the ancient Greek New Testament manuscripts include the words against you. That is, some of the manuscripts say only, moreover, if your brother commits a sin, leaves out the against you. So in the one case, it's an issue between two people. Someone's offended someone else. In the second case, it is that someone within the believing community has committed a sin, presumably against God. So the question is, what does the community do about such a sinner? I strongly favor the first case because of the context of how the matter is handled, but I can't dismiss the possibility that it is the second case. Now, since I'm rather confident that this is about an issue between two people, then we must also approach this matter as the offense not rising to the level of a crime, as we would think of it. That is, it's not something that has occurred that under normal circumstances would be taken before a criminal court system, such that a level of judicial punishment might be involved. It may not even have been a situation where a law of Moses was broken, such that a temple sacrifice was required. Now I want to emphasize this. See, verses 15 through 20 are mostly about someone doing something that substantially upset another and caused them shame. This passage has sometimes been misconstrued to say that Christians should not involve the local criminal legal system when someone has committed a crime within the Christian community, but rather this should be treated as an internal matter. I want to give you a real-life example of what I mean by this. I am aware, personally aware, of a church that had hundreds of thousands of dollars embezzled over a several years period by that church's financial officer. Once discovered, the pastor and some others did not want to report the matter to the police, but rather they thought that Christ taught that instead the Christian community should handle it themselves and avoid the local legal system. Thus, perhaps using what is outlined here in Matthew 18, the notion was that the man would be confronted, whereby he would confess, repent, and they could make a deal with him to pay the money back and thereby not involve the police. Now, apparently the church's board decided to contact law enforcement despite the pastor's appeals not to. Who was right? The pastor or the board? I tell you, the board was right. And this is because what Christ taught about community discipline in this passage, generally speaking, did not involve criminality. A way to think about it 
is that what's being dealt with is more akin to our civil code of justice that does not deal with matters of guilt or innocence. Rather, it deals with compensation, satisfaction, restoration for someone wronging another in some way. Very often in our time, it has to do with performance of a contract. Or someone borrowed a tool and returned it broken, and they felt no responsibility to fix it or replace it. So it was these sorts of things, these sorts of offenses, like your neighbor cutting down a tree and falls and damages your fence. These sorts of offenses, plus the element of shame, that is more what is being contemplated. It isn't outright theft or murder or some such thing. And I tell you this because both as a community of believers and as individual believers, we must be careful not to misapply what's being spoken by Yeshua. And what is being spoken is about members of the local community at large. You, me, everybody. But the key word is local. Leaders are certainly included in this, but they are held to an even higher standard. They can bear larger consequences than laymen for their wrongs, for our wrongs. However, the issue of leadership and leaders is not the real focus of the subject. With that as a background, let's reread this passage. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to just read verses 15 through 20. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Moreover, if your brother commits a sin against you, go and show him his fault, but privately, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won back your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others with you so that every accusation can be supported by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to hear them, tell the congregation. And if he refuses to listen even to the congregation, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Yes, I tell you people that whatever you prohibit on earth will be prohibited in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. To repeat, I tell you that if two of you here on earth agree about anything people ask, it will be for them from my Father in heaven. For wherever two or three are assembled in my name, I am there with them. From the long view, the entire scenario that is being envisioned is something that we could call dispute resolution. That in the West could involve an arbitrator, not a judge. There is a, a multi-step process established by Jesus to deal with the dispute between two individual followers, one seeing himself as the offended party, 
By definition, the other party sees no responsibility in the matter, or it could be that that person isn't even aware that he's caused an offense. Now, if we look behind the words, it is rather easy to see that there is great benefit in this meant for the offender so that he is not publicly humiliated or put in a position of never being able to be restored. And of course, the outcome hoped for is that the offended party feels satisfied. Thus, privately, the offended party is to confront the other party to see if matters can be worked out. If not, then one or two other members of the believer's community the local community, are to be taken as witnesses. This is assuming they have some insight as to what occurred. Why? Why this procedure? Because as the end of verse 16 says, so that every accusation can be supported by the testimony of two or three witnesses. See, this phrase I just read to you is a paraphrase of the Law of Moses in Deuteronomy 19.15. One witness alone will not be sufficient to convict a person of any offense or sin of any kind. The matter will be established only if there are two or three witnesses testifying against him. So how does taking one or two witnesses along add up to obeying the Law of Moses that requires two or three? Because obviously, the offended person is, in this case, counted as a witness. But also because we are once again now dealing with lesser matters, personal offenses, shaming, not criminality. Verse 17 says that if steps 1 and 2 fail, then step 3 must be invoked. The offense is to be announced to the local believing community. Or better, the offense now moves from the private sphere to the public. And if the person refuses to even acknowledge his offense after it's revealed to the community, then he is to be treated as a pagan or a tax collector. Now, the Greek word being translated as pagan here is ethnikos and it's referring to a person of another nationality. In other words, a Gentile, a non-Jew. See, I find it kind of ironic that one of the twelve disciples was a what? A tax collector. The point is not, therefore, that Christ is somehow saying the tax collectors are all inherently wicked. He is merely using two examples from among those folks considered by Jews in general as unwanted outsiders to the Jewish community. A Jewish tax collector was deemed as an outsider because he was seen as a, a traitor, and so he was shunned. Bottom line, the final step of the discipline process is to exclude the unrepentant offender from the believer's community. Some commentators say this amounts to excommunication. Excommunication is actually an action that was a, an action that was originally prescribed by the Catholic Church. 
It meant that a person could not engage in any of the church sacraments, such as communion, nor could they attend confession. So essentially they were declared no longer part of the church. Their salvation was in jeopardy, if not revoked. Therefore, I cannot agree that excommunication is what's being called for by this, by uh, being called for by Yeshua. That is, that this unrepentant offender is somehow declared as having had his faith declared null and void. Rather, being cast out is the most severe community discipline contemplated. He just can't be in that group. Now it goes without saying that the hope is that at some point the, this person who is now experiencing the loss of fellowship as a discipline will realize his offense and wrong. He will confess, repent, be restored to the community. That's the goal. Then in, then in verse 18 we get what isn't really a repeat of something Yeshua said in an earlier chapter. It is more or less saying that this is the principle that He had already stated that's now being brought into action. And the principle is that whatever you prohibit on earth will be prohibited in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Thus Jesus is saying, if one follows this discipline procedure that He laid out, then the decision of the community to forgive the offender his offense, to loose or to permit, or to cast out the unrepentant offender, to bind or to prohibit, is to be accepted as correct. It's the righteous thing to do on every level, physically and spiritually. God backs it. So there's no need to worry, there's no need to wonder if there is proper authority behind it. Yeshua goes so far as to say that such a decision is to be taken as if they had received it directly from the Father in heaven. Pretty strong. But now in verse 20, we get a well-known phrase that, again, must be taken in its context for proper understanding. This is a verse you all know. Matthew 18, 20, For wherever two or three are assembled in my name, I am there with them. We've all heard it a hundred times, maybe a thousand. See, the context of Christ's statement is the decision of the community to forgive or to expel a wrongdoer. Notice that two or three witnesses were to be called against the offender before the more drastic action of going public and then expelling him was taken. And in this context, Jesus is saying, I am there with you in this decision when, as believers, you follow this process. So we can't just willy-nilly lift this statement about two or three being assembled in my name 
from Matthew, isolating it, and then making it into an overly broad proverb. Now, folks, I'm sorry to pop some large Christian bubbles, but this is the only place, it is the only context that we find this particular statement of Yeshua or of any writer in the New Testament about wherever two or three are assembled in my name, I'm there with them. I'm there with you. The issue is this is not the establishment of a Christian minion. In Judaism, a minion of ten men is needed for prayer. So Yeshua isn't somehow reducing that number to two or three of his followers. This has nothing to do with prayer in general. Nothing to do with it. This has to do with the specific matter of the minimum number of men to determine and then to apply community discipline. And it includes his assurance that they are acting in his authority. He says, I am there when they do that, when we do that. Now, I think it's instructional to see how Paul looked at this teaching of Yeshua. And then he taught it this way. In 1 Corinthians, we read this, 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 1, How dare one of you with a complaint against another go to a court before pagan judges and not before God's people? Don't you know that God's people are going to judge the universe? If you're going to judge the universe, are you incompetent to judge these minor matters? Don't you know we will judge angels? Not to mention affairs of everyday life. So if you don't require so if you require judgments about matters of just everyday life, why do you put them in front of men who have no standing in the messianic community? I say shame on you. Can it be that there isn't one person among you wise enough to be able to settle a dispute between brothers? Instead, a brother brings a lawsuit against another brother, and that before unbelievers. Can't you just see Paul wagging his finger out there? Notice the key words minor matters, and affairs of everyday life. See, this is a lovely and accurate way of characterizing Yeshua's instructions from Matthew 18, 15 through 20. These are not some large criminal matters. These are disputes. These are disagreements. And just like today, there were in Christ's era lower courts to settle these everyday matters, if it need be, think of it like small claims court. No one is going to jail over it, and the size of the matter is relatively small. But Yeshua and Paul are saying that there ought to be enough goodwill and wisdom in a community of believers to settle such small disputes among ourselves instead of having to go to a public court of small claims. 
Thus a dispute that must go outside of the community and to a court over small everyday matters means that either the offended or the offender is not being reasonable or obedient. And thus, in a way, it's a defeat for the entire community. Let's move on now to the final section of Matthew 18, which is essentially about mercy towards the offender. Before we read it, I want to, I want to preface it with this. Mercy does not mean de declaring a person not guilty. It also doesn't necessarily pardon a person from consequences for their wrongdoing. Especially when it comes to a community, mercy doesn't only involve love, it involves wisdom. It's easy to just follow a series of precisely defined laws to the letter. But even in Western style, secular justice systems, a judge must determine not only guilt, and innocence, guilt or innocence, but also what is just and what is reasonable. Decisions can have farther-reaching effects than only upon the perpetrator or even the victim. And that too has to be considered. There's no perfect answer. So we must do the best we can with the tools we are given in this imperfect world. Yeshua is giving His believers, us, tools for running a community that includes adding the elements of wisdom and mercy to our determinations for the discipline that is to be applied to an offender within the local believing community. Let's read now Matthew 18, 21, and we'll go on through the end of the chapter. Open your Bibles to Matthew 18, starting at verse 21. Follow along, please. Then Kepha came up, Peter, and said to him, Rabbi, how often can my brother sin against me and I have to forgive me? As many as seven times? No, not seven times, answered Yeshua, but seventy times seven. Because of this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared with a king who decided to settle accounts with his deputies, and right away they brought forward a man who owed him many millions, and since he couldn't pay, his master ordered that he, his wife, his children, and all his possessions be sold to pay the debt. But the servant fell down before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I'll pay back everything. So out of pity for him, the master let him go, and he forgave the debt. But as the servant was leaving, he came upon one of his fellow servants who owed him a tiny sum, and he grabbed him and he began to choke him, crying, Pay back what you owe me! He, his fellow servant fell before him and begged, Be patient with, with me, I will pay you back! But he refused. Instead, he had him thrown in jail until he could repay the debt. 
And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were extremely distressed, and they went and told their master everything that had taken place. And then their master summoned his servant and said, Well, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt just because you begged me to do it. Shouldn't you have had pity on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And in anger, his master turned him over to the jailers for punishment until he had paid back everything he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat you, unless you each forgive your brother from your hearts. Now here is another statement of Jesus that we've all heard many times. But again, it's context that is crucial for understanding and application. Begin by disregarding in your Bibles the paragraph change, because that tends to signal to our minds that there's been a subject shift. There has not. Rather, the issue is still community rules and discipline, and what to do about everyday offenses and disputes that arise, not criminal matters. And the proof of this is in the parable that Yeshua uses to make His point. So verse 15 began, keep this together, verse 15 began, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, now in verse 21 we read, Rabbi, how often can my brother sin against me and I have to forgive him? You see the connection? These two verses are clearly connected in the subject that's being addressed. So the issue is not if this offending brother admits to his offense, it's what happens if he's a serial offender. even if he's one who is quick to admit is wrong. I mean, let's face it. Most of us have known people who regularly do wrong but easily admit it when they're confronted. Even so, they'll race to do it again. Wash, rinse, repeat. Now, I confess to you that this is perhaps one of the most challenging instructions of Yeshua that I struggle with. Just how many times must I put up with someone, family member, neighbor, co-worker, acquaintance, employee, that clearly has become an expert at doing wrong, but confessing and pushing all the right buttons to garner some mercy and thus get out of some consequences, even though you know that the sincerity is lacking. Peter asks if he is to forgive this brother as many as seven times, and Yeshua responds, 70 times seven. A little quick math says that's 490 times. That's a lot of forgiven. Of course, tabulating someone's offenses against you so that you must forgive until you hit the 491st offense is not the intent. The idea is that you always forgive someone's offenses against you. 
Now, I said, no, I've said it a few times today, but I'm going to say it again. This is not about criminality. I'm not saying that you don't forgive someone. Not at all saying that, that has done something serious, criminal against you. I'm saying this is not what's being addressed here in Matthew 18. That's all. And why must we be willing to forgive so much? Because it is in imitation of the Father in heaven who has forgiven us so many times. In the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua told His audience to pray like this. And then what follows is what we call the Lord's Prayer. Part of that prayer is in Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, Forgive us what we have done wrong, as we too have forgiven those who have wronged us. But then immediately, after giving His audience this prayer model, Christ expands on this issue of forgiveness. Just two verses later, starting at verse 14 in Matthew 6, For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will not forgive yours. So although we are twelve chapters along now, after this statement, nonetheless, the principle is embedded in what Yeshua is teaching in Matthew 18. Forgiving others for their offenses against them has no limit to the number of times the offenses are committed. That said, keep in mind that the context for what we are currently studying remains what Paul called everyday offenses, even though these everyday offenses do have the potential to be somewhat serious in their effect. Now, nearly every commentary, every journal, theological article I've read on this section of Matthew speaks of how this verse and then what follows stands in tension, in tension with what Yeshua has just said about dealing with an unrepentant offender, even to the point of expulsion. The conclusion is, among these scholars, that because of this tension, either the narrative of verses 15 through 20 is an error, or verses 21 through 35 are an error. They're saying you can't have it both ways. Or that one or the other has been added by some later Christian editor, which made rather made a mess of things. I mentioned before that academics in most fields, also in the field of the Bible, don't like fuzzy or gray areas. Typically there can be only black-white, either-or. But nothing is further from the Hebrew mindset of ancient times. A tension between multiple biblical principles indeed exists. It is legitimate. Matter of fact, it's a given because they are being carried out in the background of a much 
fallen world. Yeshua was anything but an idealist. He was a pragmatist. He didn't address hypothetical problems. He addressed real and present problems within the Jewish faith and society. And one of those societal problems stemmed partly from the remnants of the fallout of a shame and honor culture. A system that God has been trying to eradicate from Israel since Mount Sinai. As well as from erratic behaviors that result from our corrupted human nature. In applications, or rather, in application, it was people can be petty, people can be inconsiderate, can be selfish, people can say cruel, insulting totally improper things to one another. Happened, still happens every day. Probably hundreds if not thousands of times a day in every society, Jewish included. And retribution and revenge is the ungodly norm that so many humans almost instinctively respond with when we feel offended or shamed. Sometimes we're so sensitive to being rejected or disagreed with that we anticipate it's going to happen. And we look at all of life through that lens. In the first century, it often led to homicide, fights, injuries, and then blood feuds among families that could last for generations. But Jesus envisioned a community of humans based upon the kingdom of heaven. Its community rules would be entirely contrary to what seemed all too normal and customary to the current Jewish society. In truth, it was what Israel was always supposed to have looked like. Now, before we move on, I want to continue with this scriptural problem of tension between and among some God principles with forgiveness, not the least of these. Much too often, a Bible verse or even just a portion of a verse is lifted out of its setting made to stand alone, and it can become an all-encompassing proverb or even a church doctrine. Then another verse about the same matter is subjected to the same treatment, but it may offer something different about that subject. And Now you have two doctrines that disagree. See, things like love and mercy and discipline and forgiveness are dealt with in many places in the Bible, often bringing different aspects of these attributes to bear, thus causing the tension. But in reality, it falls to us to discern and know when and how to apply the various attributes of things 
like forgiveness. For instance, we all like to say that God forgives all. Not true. He does not forgive something called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, we're told. And He also doesn't forgive everyone for everything, or we wouldn't have any issue at all with anyone living their eternity outside of His presence. And according to the New Testament, the only people in line for any kind of divine forgiveness are those who accept God's Son, Yeshua, and confess it publicly. So with God as our example to mimic, it cannot be that there exists nothing that can be done to us by another human that arrives at a place where we are obligated, not obligated to forgive. Are we to be held to a higher standard than God holds Himself? And if, even if you don't agree with what I just said, we also learn in both Testaments that a perpetrator is to seek forgiveness. What if they don't? Well, we see in the previous verses of a perpetrator who did not confess, did not repent, and therefore would not, obviously, have sought forgiveness, and thus doesn't seem to have been given any. And even though the issues Christ is addressing in this narrative are of the, the smaller everyday variety, where's the line that the offense crosses over into a serious matter? So the attributes of love, mercy, discipline, forgiveness, man, it involves shades of gray, and it's complex. This means we just can't read a couple of verses about any of these things and just mechanically go by that in our decision-making. We need to study God's Word thoroughly, see these matters in several different contexts in order to learn how He deals with them and therefore what He asks of us. This is the reason now that the remainder of chapter 18 is a parable. It is to help the twelve disciples understand how to apply what Yeshua has just taught them. Now let's take just a moment to review what a parable is. A parable is a fictional story that is concocted to make a point. The characters in the story are also fictional. In addition, every parable has but one moral to it. A parable is not an allegory that we can remake to suit any number of circumstances. And finally, we must be careful not to try to dissect a parable. The details are generally unimportant. They are only there to make the parable meaningful, enjoyable, colorful, memorable. Therefore, in this parable of the king and the wicked servant, this is not meant 
to mimic any particular king or servant in any real situation or to imply that all kings and all servants are like this. So, the point of this parable is trying to teach that it's trying to teach concerns the nature of divine forgiveness within the context of human to human relationships. Love your neighbor. I've mentioned before, Yeshua is not a revolutionary. He was a reformer. So his teachings are also not revolutionary. Rather, they are trying to reform the Jewish faith by reinstituting to it a true understanding of God's Word, the Tanakh, that has been undermined by centuries of man-made traditions. So, much of what we see Yeshua teach had already been long ago taught. As an example, in the Babylonian Talmud, section Shabbat 151b, we read of Rabbi Gamliel Beribi saying something that had been a bulwark of Hebrew society for centuries. It says, He who is merciful to others will have mercy shown to him from heaven. He who is not merciful to others will not have mercy shown to him from heaven. Of course we have heard this. Nearly word for word from Jesus, because Jesus didn't invent the concept. Jesus was trying to restore an understanding of the operation of forgiveness and mercy from the divine viewpoint. And so, how it is intended to play out within human relationships. Yeshua, of course, was more directly concerned with this divine concept of mercy and forgiveness playing out properly within the newly arrived Kingdom of Heaven and the community that participated in it, His followers. So, in this parable, we find that a servant of this anonymous king is in debt to the king for the insanely huge amount of 10,000 talents. That's not how the Jewish Bible reads, they use different words, but in the Greek it's 10,000 talents. We must understand that just like the instruction to forgive 70 times 7, it is not a number that was meant for purposes of tabulation. Rather, it's just a number that represents a limitless amount. So is the 10,000 talents meant to represent a limitless amount of debt that's owed. See, trying to comprehend that number, 10,000 talents, for the average Jew of the first century is like us trying to comprehend the ever-growing national debt. Anybody here, can you imagine a trillion of anything? How about several? So the number wasn't meant to present us with a precise amount, but rather to make the point of its enormity that had no chance of ever being paid back. And since common Jews, probably rich ones as well, of course understood that, then the servant asking the king to have some more patience to give him more time to pay it back, well, it's an absurdity. 
That king could have given that servant a thousand years. There's no way he could pay back, have accumulated such an astronomical sum and pay it back. Well, now that Yeshua's audience is hooked on this story, the totally unexpected solution is presented. Rather than the king giving his servant more time, knowing the time wasn't the issue, the debt simply was not repayable, he shows mercy and he cancels all that was owed. Now in Yeshua's day, a servant along with his entire family that didn't pay his debt was liable to become property of the debt holder till it was paid. Now the plot takes a very interesting twist. The now debt-free servant immediately confronts a man, a peer more or less, who owes him just a trivial amount of money. And this other servant asks, guess what, for just a little more time. The servant that has just had his incalculably high debt canceled by the king as an act of mercy, then threatens the servant who owed him just this tiny amount, said said he would have him imprisoned if he didn't pay it back immediately. Other servants overheard this, were greatly upset, they reported it to the king. The king calls this servant before him, deems him wicked, because he did not show mercy to this other servant on just the smallest level. See, it's inherent to the story that the wicked servant should have mimicked what his king just did for him. Thus the king reversed his edict. He took back the forgiveness of that debt until the servant had been given uh, uh, the, the forgiveness he'd been given was taken back, he threw this greedy, this unrepentant person into prison, it says, until every last shekel was paid. Now, of course, it was impossible that debt could ever be repaid. So what does this mean? This man was destined to remain in prison forever. In verse 35, Christ gives us the moral of the story. Just one moral, so his disciples don't have to try to figure it out for themselves, something they proved not very good at. And verse 35, he says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat you unless you each forgive your brother from your hearts. Mercy and forgiveness are not simple matters. They are complex with several nuances. But a general underlying principle is that mercy and forgiveness is a reciprocal arrangement, and it must happen from the heart. It can't only be an outward behavior. If we show mercy and forgiveness to our fellow man, the Father will show it to us. We don't, He won't. Of course, the impossibly perfect and complete forgiveness the Father will give to us cannot be precisely carried out by any human. But this is the bullseye of the target that especially as believers we're to strive to hit. 
But now let's return to the beginning of the parable. The first words were, in verse 23, because of this, the kingdom of heaven may be compared. So the important background of this parable is that it is about how to understand what the kingdom of heaven is like. Mercy and forgiveness are not natural for humans, but they are for the kingdom of heaven. So what is depicted in this parable is nothing like what everyone on earth, Jews included, have ever witnessed. It operates like nothing on earth, because at the moment, earth is Satan's dominion. However, as much as is possible, Christ's followers are to choose, decide, obey, and behave as though the kingdom of heaven was already in its fullness and Satan had already been banished. I find it interesting that in Jesus' parable there is no mention of the wicked servant asking for mercy and forgiveness a second time. I confess I don't know that we ought to draw anything that Yeshua intended to communicate from the absence of such a pleading yet again for forgiveness, but from an allegorical standpoint, I think an application can rightfully be made. See, the servant knows that this time his offense is so great that he's crossed over some line in the sand that once the king's wrath comes down upon him, once that begins, there's no turning back. The servant stands condemned due to his own hard heart, his wrong attitude, and forgiveness for him? Well, that's no longer an option. In fact, the punishment, the king's wrath, for him is even worse than it would have been had he not been forgiven the first time. I'll tell you why that is. The complete Jewish Bible does a poor job in translating verse 34, because there we read that the king is king turned the wicked servant over to jailers, we're told, for punishment. This implies that jail is the punishment, just like it is in the Western world today. However, see, the Greek word is basanistes, and it means a person who tortures. Think of being burned slowly at the stake, being sawed in two, having your skin flayed from your body. The king has turned this wicked servant over to the torturer in order that he suffer unspeakable, interminable pain. And trust me, the twelve disciples who heard this parable Oh, they understood the gravity of the intent. We'll begin chapter 19 next time.